Well, a wonderful and important feast day that we have today, Saints Peter and Paul. And I always like to talk about this feast day by way of reference to a, a, a particular icon, an image, an artistic image that comes down to us in our tradition. And it's actually a picture of Peter and Paul, and they're hugging each other and kissing each other. Okay? And it's not a weird thing. It's not like some kind of weird thing going on there. But what, what it is is, you know, in the ancient world, they would give each other the pox, uh, the, the, the kiss of peace. Okay, that was a common thing. In fact, we, we, they used to do that in church. Okay, now we shake hands, but they used to kiss, okay? So, uh, and to this day, you know, I, in different Mediterranean countries, men kiss. So we, we're coming from like an Anglo background. We're like, whoa, don't do that. That's weird, you know? But in the Mediterranean countries, that was a common sign of friendship. So it's, it's a really neat icon because it shows the unity between Peter and Paul. And uh, right from the beginning, really, of the apostolic faith, there were forces try, uh, from the outside, evil forces really trying to creep into the church to try to break it apart and disunify it. Okay, And so some people championed Peter over Paul and others championed Paul over Peter, when in reality they were actually in harmony with each other. And that's, that's really important. And in fact, that, that icon captures... Uh, a traditional uh, moment in their lives, and in this the moment is very beautiful. It's they're both in Rome, and they're on the maybe it's the Appian Way, I believe, and they meet at this one particular place. It's all according to tradition, and you go to Rome to this day, and there's different monuments and whatnot that commemorate these these uh, traditional events, and uh, they both know that they're going to be martyred soon, and so that's they it's the last time that they see each other. And they embrace and they give the kiss of peace and then they go their separate ways. And Peter gets martyred first, I believe, and then Paul a little bit later on. I don't know exactly what the relevant time frame is there within the year, I, I suppose. They were both martyred in Rome. Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen and Peter, because he was not a Roman citizen, was crucified. He was subjected to a worse form of, of death. But it's just a beautiful thing. They both know that they have labored their whole lives for Christ and for the gospel. And they know that they're going to be heading to their death. Uh, they're going to be killed in a, in a violent manner. And uh, they are maintaining that, that unity right until the very end. In the church today, this is something here is a little kind of a warning that I give out to everybody pastorally. Something I've observed over the past few years. And it, it's a, a kind of a division that's taking place in the church right now, unfortunately. It's nothing new. Okay, we've faced threats to our unity for 2,000 years, so it's really nothing new. Nothing to be panicked about, you know, or to go crazy over, but there, there is a kind of a fresh threat to the unity of the, of the church recently in the past few years that I've observed developing. And it, it can be traced back probably 30, 40 years or even a little bit more. And you see this even in, ch- in channels of EWTN, for example. Now, EWTN is a great channel. I've met so many people in my life who have benefited so greatly from EWTN and all the good things that they have on there. But they've given platform to a voice that's very, uh, it's very subtle, but it's anti-papal. Okay, so there's a kind of a, a voice out there that speaks against the Holy Father. And uh, sometimes they do it in the name of an episode that we read about in Galatians. Um, in which uh, St. Paul is rebuking Peter. And so people say, well, see, even St. Paul rebuked Peter, and therefore we have the right to rebuke and to criticize the Pope and whatnot. 
And uh, there's like like in anything, there's a measure of truth to that. Um, but it's very very complicated affair. So uh, for the most part, I think that the the people who are kind of mounting this media campaign against the Pope are misplaced. So. For example, if there's a theologian, I think maybe one of the first things that we have to understand is that theology is just as complicated uh, or more complicated than physics, for example. All right, so just like you need to study your whole life, it's, it's, you have to be an expert. It's something that you dedicate your life to. And I think that's a fundamental mistake that we have, especially uh, in the Anglophone world and in America. We tend to think we, there's a certain level of respect that we have for expertise when it comes to the sciences, for example. But when it comes to religion, people think, ah, it's religion. Everybody can have an opinion, you know? So that, but it's kind of not true because these are really complicated mysteries that are being revealed. So I think that's a huge sort of like ingredient in all of this. And uh, so the church allows, you can look in the, in the Code of Canon Law, Canon 212, the church allows... Um, the the laity, the faithful priests, theologians, to voice concerns about their prelates, okay, bishops, and even the pope. Um, but there's really certain circumstances and conditions by which that's supposed to be done. And if you look at what, how that's being done right now, it's really not in accordance with canons. Canon 212. They're really not doing it. One of the one of the requirements of Canon 212 is it basically says it has to be by way of expertise. Okay, so you have to like really know what you're talking about, and that means like I don't, I'm not in a position. I've studied theology for over 20 years. I'm not in a position to talk about some of these theological issues uh, because I'm just a parish priest, and my whole life is dedicated to making sure the sacraments are administered properly. I don't, I don't really read that much. I read a little bit. But I don't study. I'm not an expert in theology. It's just I'm not. <laughs> so you got to know your own your own limits. And I mean, I've seen things where if you got like life site news, you know, church militants, these things that you find online, it's bad news. I mean, I've known stories of these. Like I just knew a parishioner in Auburn. I mean, you know, it's a young kid. He goes. He gets hired by church militant. I mean, the kid knows nothing. And they're writing all of these articles about stuff that's like way over their head, you know. And it's that, that same kind of American thing where, you know, you have to submit to the authority of scientific experts, but when it comes to theology, well, everybody's got an opinion, you know. So it's it's not it's not so good. So the whole idea of expertise is really important in this. And then, moreover, it's this: say you're say you're you are a theologian. And you have uh, a canonical mandate, meaning that the Vatican has actually given you permission to teach in a Vatican-approved uh, school of theology. And you know, maybe you've got concerns about certain things that that bishops or maybe even the Pope has said. Um, you can voice your concern, and you can actually publish it as well. Uh, but you have to be attentive to the common advantage of the of the ecclesial community. And that's a real key element of Canon 212. So what that means is you have to say to yourself, maybe what I should do, and I think this is the mistake that a lot of these guys are making, maybe what I should do is really just limit my my discussions um, to academic journals, okay? 
Because it's really supposed to be a dialogue between you and the guys in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and these really big-level theologians who are you know, wrapped up in the Vatican. So they read theological journals. And if you really do kind of want to change their mind, you know, maybe keep your writings to theological journals that people commonly are just not reading because they're specialized academic um, venues. So, and it's not, there's not, Canon 212 does not absolutely preclude you writing a book that's at more of a popular level, but what you need to do as a theologian is ask yourself the question, what's going to happen? Is there, is there a movement of like mass dissent and opposition to the Pope right now? Yeah. And is this writing going to contribute to that? Well, probably. So don't, don't publish in that outlet. Okay. So those are some basic considerations. Um, that, you know, you look at someone like St. Paul, and when he opposed Peter, first of all, it goes without saying that St. Paul was equal to Peter by virtue of his vocation to be an apostle. All right, so that's kind of a big deal. All right? Um, most of the people that are writing against the Pope and putting blog posts and all this, just spouting off different, different opinions, I mean, they're not, they're not St. Paul, okay? Peter was still superior to St. Paul by virtue of the governmental structure of the church, though. Okay, So that he held a primacy even in relation to Paul. And, and Paul, you know, took issue with something that Peter was doing and opposed him. But Peter, I'm sorry, St. Paul would have never done that if he thought that it would lead to disunity. If he thought that it would lead to confusion amongst the faithful. Alright? So I have, you know, these devout ladies watching EWTN who are looking at Raymond Arroyo on the world over and they're saying, what's the Pope doing? Oh my gosh, can we trust him? Oh my gosh, maybe he's... You know, so that's very irresponsible of Raymond Arroyo, for example, to be doing this. And then he has the papal posse, you know, a priest, Father Gerald Murray from New York City. He's just a canon lawyer. I mean, he's not anything special, you know. And... um Robert Royale, I, I think that's his name, and these guys who, you know, they're not dummies, but they're not experts, and they're just constantly getting together and speaking things in such a way that's going to undermine the confidence of the faithful in the Pope. St. Paul would, would never have done that. Okay, So this today, what we celebrate is ecclesial unity and its respect for the church and for the unity of the church, its respect for the church's leaders who have a really hard job to begin with and they don't need, you know, lots of unnecessary problems being thrown their way. And it's a celebration, though, above all, f- fundamentally, of the unity that's given to the church that with which it's been endowed that is intrinsic to it by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So no matter how much conflict and tension and opposition and hardship we face, we thank God that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And that's a, that's a really wonderful and beautiful thing. Um, it's something, it, it enables us to feel like we belong to something that's going to last and that's truly permanent. And it really gives us peace at the depth of our hearts to know that, that we have the privilege of being baptized members of the church and that no matter what takes place, no matter how many problems the devil throws our way, we're going to be okay, and that unity is going to be maintained, and that's going to be a sign of God's love for humanity and for the world. So that's what we celebrate today, the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul.